I want to give a quick shout out to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. You really help keep the lights on at Dirty History. And to everyone else, if you value the show as an educational resource, meaning you learn things you didn't know you wanted to know and laugh at things you didn't know you could, consider supporting the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. Patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. It may just be $1 a month for you, which really only adds up to $12 a year, but for me in this show, it means everything. It's almost like if you saw me on the streets and you and I both had free time, would you buy me a cup of coffee? I mean, that's what supporting the show on Patreon is. Help me make the show what we want it to be. Patreon.com slash Dirty History. Thank you to all of you in advance. And um, with that, on with the show. It was the early 1950s at the standoff between Titans. I mean, what better place for fear to spread on a massive scale than here? The board was set, and the pieces were in place. The world was freshly scarred from a globe-engulfing conflict that saw the introduction of atomic anxiety, the displacement of the world power dynamic, not to mention millions of civilians, and most of Central Europe was carved up like a holiday ham. World War II was over, and the world was entering a period known by many historians and thinkers today as the Long Peace. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times, as Charles Dickens said, but for instance, the introduction of this Long Peace saw just five years after its widely agreed-upon origin of 1945, the Korean War. So the Korean War happens five years after we begin this Long Peace, quote-quote, and this This era of anxiety, which I like to call it, that has arguably not ended, and perhaps only ramped up under the guise of a war on terror, is the backdrop for part of our story. A part of our story where a school presentation perpetuating atomic anxiety by encouraging you to duck and cover was commonplace. In fact, it was such a commonality that the Federal Civil Defense Administration and the Safety Commission for the National Education Association co-produced the following jingle. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He ducked. What we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Duck and cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with the Safety Commission of the National Education Association. Produced by Archer Productions, Incorporated. The indoctrination of the youth into an anti-Soviet mindset by way of infiltrating America's public schools was underway. The atomic threat was part of the U.S. national consciousness. But it was not 
it was not the sum total of what made up what it meant to be an American at this time. There was much pride and excitement over the opportunity for growth as a nation, but as I said before, it can also be characterized as an era of anxiety. An era for certain individuals who possessed desirable traits like dishonesty, opportunism, and a disregard for civil liberties could enter the fray of public media. It was a period, really, that in tone on the international stage was not unlike the standoff in a Sergio Leone-Clint Eastwood movie where the subtlest flick of a wrist or the subtlest move spoke volumes about your overall intentions. It's a period like the 1950s, like the Cold War era, which breeds our focus for this episode, which breeds the unifying theme for this episode. Fear. The reason I set the scene for this story in the 1950s, at the dawn of the Cold War, is not because it's the, it's the chronological origin of our story, and it's not, but because it's a period, at least in the United States, of an odd consensus, an agreement that there is an other, a villain, to the American way of life, one that you learn to fear in school, an education, I might add, whose effects are still felt today. You see, dirty history is all about you find the extreme example of something, and then you walk it back into its common form. So one day, you can notice that this thing can be drawn to a very extreme example, and it is laid bare and shown how ridiculous it really is. We were able to tone down extreme examples of human behavior into an everyday behavior. I mean, really, that's a lot of what quote-unquote being civilized is. Toning down extreme behavior, extreme examples, extreme thoughts into everyday actions. Disguising the extreme as the mundane. And I say that because most anti-communists shared some consensus about the nature of communism. Perhaps it was an extreme idea that they brought into the fold of everyday life. And that consensus that they brought into the fold of everyday life was that communism was somehow a threat to democracy in American life. And this fear and consensus regarding communism comes to a head when this phenomenon known as McCarthyism enters to the public consciousness. Now, perhaps you've heard of it, perhaps you haven't. Regardless, the name stems from the exploits of one Joseph McCarthy, who, from 1947 to his death in 1957, served as a U.S. Senator from Wisconsin. Of those ten years he served in office, the first three were of no remark, and the last three saw him censured, which I may add makes him only one of nine U.S. senators to have that punishment, if you want to call it that, levied against him. But it was, it was those four years between anonymity and censure that saw McCarthy at the forefront of U.S. media as he attempted to root out communism 
which was in his estimation spreading its tentacles incognito throughout the U.S. bureaucracy. The media circus juggled by McCarthy can be said to have risen to prominence in 1950 when McCarthy claimed to have a list of communist spies in the State Department. Now, that isn't, that isn't to say anti-communism sentiment began in 1950. It well predates the Cold War, but 1950 is a crucial date for as the second Red Scare ramps up, as does this phenomenon known as the Lavender Scare, which finds its high watermark when James Porfoy, a State Department official, claimed that the State Department had not so politely asked 91 homosexual workers to resign. In that, in that comment, that admittance just gets some members of the House of Representatives in a frenzied state. The Lavender Scare would become characterized by the mass firing and in some cases incarcerations of homosexual people in the 1950s from the U.S. government. And as you know, I'm a slave to context, so a quick aside on the Lavender Scare would be useful for our purposes. There is a, there is a congressional record of one of the earliest mentions of Porfiroy's homosexual resignations in the State Department. The following comes from the 81st Congress, second session, March 29th to April 24th, 1950. On the floor of the House of Representatives is none other than Arthur L. Miller. And Miller was the Republican representative from Nebraska's 4th District. He also authored... D.C.'s sexual psychopath law in 1948, which made sodomy punishable by up to 20 years in prison and dictated that those arrested under the law had to undergo psychiatric evaluation. In 1950, Edwin Sutherland wrote about these laws for the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, and he presents in his article a definition of what Arthur L. Miller, the Republican representative from Nebraska, means when he says sexual psychopath, quote, persons with criminal propensities to the commission of sexual offenses. And these sexual psychopaths are built up by lawmakers under a certain set of assumptions, much like communists. Just as there's this consensus, again, among communists infiltrating the U.S. government, there seems to be a consensus among some lawmakers about homosexuality and its intersection with sexual psychopathy. Now, I should say a few things before we move on. I obviously do not agree with McCarthy or Arthur L. Miller, but I will quote them just to give you an illustration of their mindset. I think it will be in equal measure shocking and illuminating to hear the words of these lawmakers from themselves. Of course, it was the 1950s, and their manner of speaking about homosexuality was not nuanced but quite offensive. That said, I think we should go forth, but I just wanted to give my audience a heads up about what is to come. So, the assumptions that build the sexual psychopath archetype are that first, women and children are in the greatest danger. After all, the villain must be given a victim. If you read into it, the subtext is that the degenerates are coming for your wife and child. Lock your doors, load your shotgun. J. Edgar Hoover wrote, in fact, quote, the most rapidly increasing type of crime is that perpetuated by degenerate sex offenders. And these sex offenders... If you go back to the sexual psychopath archetype, are those people that are, again, coming for women and children. Hoover's statement plays into the second and first assumptions that most or all 
of the sex crimes committed in the United States are committed by, quote, degenerates or sex fiends or sexual psychopaths. And again, we learned that these people are repeat offenders. And this is something news outlets echoed and amplified. David G. Whittles wrote in his article, What Can We Do About Sex Crimes? that, quote, tens of thousands of them are loose in the country today, them being sexual degenerates. So the minutia of the time, the themes of the time, are that there are sexual degenerates. They will assault your children and assault your wives. You put them in jail, and if they come out again, they will do it again because they are repeat offenders. And the fact that there are tens of thousands of sexual psychopaths lose should scare people because the third assumption is that these sexual psychopaths can't help themselves. Usually they would say himself because apparently sexual psychopaths at this time could only be men and that he will continue to assault throughout his life if given the chance because he has no control over his sexual impulses. Now, if these assumptions, which I might add are informing legal policy, I might add, they're not, they're not scaring you yet. The fourth assumption seems to be the most dangerous. As Sutherland writes, quote, a sexual psychopath can be identified with a high degree of precision even before he has committed any sex crimes. Let me repeat that one more time because this is the dangerous assumption. It is that sexual psychopaths, quote, can be identified with a high degree of precision even before he has committed any sex crime. At the height of the Lavender and Red Scare, many, quote, sexual psychopaths were identified with what claimed to be a high degree of precision. And... For someone who, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, is hungry for power and possessed by dishonesty, opportunism, and disregard for civil liberties, this whole sexual psychopath mumbo-jumbo might be just what you need to set a hearing over the edge. It might be that ace in the hole, a way to target your enemy with something they can't defend themselves against. The fifth, sixth, and seventh assumptions take it all a step further, stating that the legal system of a country fails if it releases a sexual psychopath who will inevitably prey on women and children again, and that sexual psychopaths must be segregated and placed under the care of psychiatrists. Now, a few things. Not only are these people degenerates, they will prey on women and children, and they will do it again and again because they can't control themselves, you can also, with some precision, determine who these degenerates and these fiends will be, and we should lock them up and throw away the key because a country fails if it releases a sexual psychopath who will inevitably prey on women and children again. This isn't to say sex crime is not real. It obviously is. That would be preposterous. Rape occurs. Sexual assault occurs. Unfortunately, all you have to do is turn on the news today to see an example of that. But what I am saying is the best way to turn a country against homosexuals, some of whom are political enemies or scapegoats, is to link them to and as 
persons with criminal propensities to the commission of sex offenses. And let's not paint Mr. Edwin Sutherland in a negative light. He said of these assumptions guiding lawmakers about sexual psychopathy, quote, All of these propositions, which are implicit in the laws and explicit in the popular literature, are either false or questionable. The identification of a habitual sex offender as a sexual psychopath has no more justification than the identification of any other habitual offenders as a psychopath, such as one who repeatedly steals, violates the antitrust laws, or lies about his golf score. The psychiatrist would almost unanimously object to this definition. But the interesting thing is that it doesn't matter for public policy because Back on the floor of the House of Representatives in 1950, at the ascent of Joseph McCarthy and the high watermark of the Lavender Scare, Senator Arthur L. Miller says the following words, forever etched in public record. You could find them today if you like. Quote, Mr. Chairman, I realize that I am discussing a very delicate subject. I cannot lay the bones bare like I could before medical colleagues. I would like to strip the fetid, stinking flesh off of this skeleton of homosexuality and tell my colleagues of the House some of the facts of nature. I cannot expose all the putrid facts as it would offend the sensibilities of some of you. It would be necessary to skirt some of the edges, and I use certain Latin terms to describe some of these individuals. Make no mistake, several thousand, according to police records, are now employed by the federal government. I offer this amendment to the Vores Amendment in good faith. Recently, the spotlight of publicity has been focused not only upon the State Department, but upon the Department of Commerce because of homosexuals being employed in these and other departments of government. Recently, Mr. Porfoy of the State Department said he allowed 91 individuals in the State Department to resign because they were homosexuals. Now, they are like birds of a feather. They flock together. Where did they go? You must know what a homosexual is. It is amazing that in the capital city of Washington, we are plagued with such a large group of these individuals. Washington attracts many lovely folks. The sex crimes in the city are many. Again, I'm quoting Arthur L. Miller. Quote, In the 80th Congress... I was the author of the sex pervert bill that passed this Congress and is now a law in the District of Columbia. It can confine some of these people in St. Elizabeth's Hospital for treatment. They are the sex perverts. Some of them are more to be pitied than condemned, because in many it is a pathological condition, very much like the kleptomaniac who must go out and steal. He has that urge, or like the pyromaniac who goes to bed and wakes up in the middle of the night with an urge to go out and set a fire. He does that. Some of these homosexuals are in that class. Remember, there were 91 of them dismissed in the State Department. That is a small percentage of those employed in government. We learned two years ago that there were around 4,000 homosexuals in the district. The police department the other day said there were between five and 6,000 in Washington who were active and 75% were in government employment. There are places in Washington where they gather 
for the purposes of sex orgies, where they worship at the cesspool of flesh pots of iniquity. There's a restaurant downtown where you will find male prostitutes. They solicit business for other male customers. They are pimps and undesirable characters. You will find odd words in their vocabulary of the homosexual. There are many types, such as the necrophiliac, fetishism, pygmalionism, fellatios, cunning linguists, sodomaniacs, pedastry, safism, sadism, masochists. Indeed, there are many methods of practice among the homosexuals. You will find those people using the words as, quote, he is a fish, he is a bull dicker, he is a mama and a papa, a punk, a pimp. Yes, in one of our prominent restaurants, rug parties and sex orgies go on. Some of these people have been in the State Department, and I understand some of them are now in other departments. The 91 who were permitted to resign have gone someplace, and like birds of a feather they flock together. Those people like to be known to each other. They have signs used on streetcars in public places to call attention to others of like mind. Their rug and fairy parties are elaborate. So, I offer this amendment. And when the time comes for voting upon it, I hope that no one will object. I sometimes wonder how many of these homosexuals have had a part in shaping our foreign policy. How many of them have been in sensitive positions and subject to blackmail? It is a known fact that homosexuality goes back to the Orientals long before the time of Confucius, that the Russians are strong believers in homosexuality, and that those same people are able to get into the State Department and get somebody in their embrace. Fearing blackmail, they will go to any extent. Perhaps if all the facts were known, these same homosexuals have been used by the communists. I realize that there is some physical danger to anyone exposing all the details and nastiness of homosexuality because some of these people are dangerous. They will go to any limits. These homosexuals have strong emotions. They are not to be trusted, and when blackmail threatens, they are dangerous as a group. Again, that was Arthur L. Miller, and it was at times like that I would want to use an audio recording so you could really feel the hate in his voice when he says that, or really feel that he believes what he's saying. But alas, there was no audio recording. There was only the congressional record. What Miller is saying about homosexuals is obviously disgusting and unfounded. But it isn't particularly new. The thoughts Miller had regarding homosexuals were many decades in the making. He was simply reinforcing and amplifying existing stereotypes. As Michel Foucault wrote in his book, The Use of Pleasure, quote, In 19th century texts, there is a stereotypical portrait of the homosexual or invert. Not only his mannerisms, his bearing, the way he gets dolled up, his coquetry, his facial expressions, his anatomy, the feminine morphology of his whole body are regularly included in the disparaging description. The image alludes both to the theme of role reversal and to the principle of a natural stigma attached to this offense against nature. One could doubtless trace the long history of this image, to which actual behaviors may have corresponded, 
through a complex play of inductions and attitudes of defiance. In the deeply negative intensity of this stereotype, one might read the age-old difficulty for our societies of integrating these two phenomena, different phenomena at that, of the inversions of sexual rules and intercourse between individuals of the same sex. Now, this image, with the repulsive aura around it, has come down through the centuries. You see, the dangerous part wasn't that Miller was some radical with new ideas, and he wasn't. The dangerous part was that he was implementing these unfounded stereotypes and hatred ingrained in him into public policy. And now those dishonest, opportunistic discarders of civil liberty can connect the lavender scare with the red scare. And not only are homosexuals sexual psychopaths, but they're also communists. And with the help of Roy Cohn, Joseph McCarthy was able to secure the firing of hundreds of government employees along with threatening countless others with fear of being branded a homosexual as he seamlessly fused the lavender scare and all the hype around it into the red scare. In 1953, some 425 State Department employees were fired under allegations of homosexual activity. Let me repeat that one more time. In 1953... Some 425 State Department employees were fired under allegations of homosexual activity. McCarthy announced to reporters on one occasion, and I quote Joseph McCarthy here, If you want to be against McCarthy boys, you've got to either be a communist or a cocksucker. Arthur L. Miller lost re-election in 1958, and Roy Cohn went on to be Donald Trump's lawyer from 1973 to 1985, where Cohen ultimately met his end in 86 from complications with AIDS. Karma's a bitch. But here's the thing. McCarthyism is a minefield for historians to contend with, and I'll probably catch some flack for the small amount I've said about it. This is the case because there are two sides of a bitter argument to contend with. McCarthy, of course, wasn't a paragon of virtue and bravery. In fact, McCarthy was one of the individuals I spoke of earlier who was dishonest, opportunistic, and showed a complete disregard for civil liberties. But, can most people question the aims removed from his character? As some, like former Secretary of Education William Bennett finds, quote, The cause of anti-communism, which united millions of Americans and which gained the support of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents alike, was undermined by Senator Joe McCarthy. McCarthy addressed a real problem, disloyal elements within the U.S. government. But his approach to this real problem was to cause untold grief to the country he claimed to love. Worst of all, McCarthy besmirched the honorable cause of anti-communism. He discredited legitimate efforts to counter Soviet subversion of American institutions. Now, whether or not you buy this perspective or think it's a load of shit, the matter of fact is, McCarthyism is tricky. I mean, is the term of McCarthyism even the best way to describe this what we've talked about? The phenomenon began 
with the onset of World War II and lingered after the fall and censure of Senator McCarthy. And that is not to say that some of the fear and attacks weren't founded. As Ellen Schweiker writes in her book, Many Are the Crimes, quote, Many of the men and women who lost their jobs or were otherwise victimized were not apolitical folks who had somehow gotten on the wrong mailing list, whether or not they should have been victimized. That's the question. Now, they certainly weren't misidentified. So what Ellen is saying here is that those that fell, lost their jobs to McCarthyism, they weren't wrongly misidentified. They were, in fact, many times communists. And in some occasions, they were homosexuals. The question was not, were they or weren't they? The question was, should they have been victimized simply because of what they believed in? So, I don't have a better term for McCarthyism, and I'll leave arguing terminology to the historians, but zeroing in on McCarthyism is important to understand the concept of othering and fear as it relates to this episode. McCarthyism was dangerous. It had a body count, albeit mostly a social one. Ten to 12,000 people lost their jobs, liberty, reputation, some spouses, all due to the effects of blackballing, prosecution, and persecution, coupled with the real strain of stress. After their conviction in 1951, the Rosenbergs fried in electric chairs just two years later. In an Ethel's case, I use fried literally, as Bob Considine, a reporter who witnessed the execution, said, quote, They died differently, gave off different sounds, different grotesque manners. Uh, he died quickly. There didn't seem to be too much life left in him when he entered behind the rabbi. He seemed to be walking in a cadence of steps of just keeping in time with the muttering of the 23rd Psalm. Never said a word. Never looked like he wanted to say a word. She died a lot harder. When it appeared that she has received enough electricity to kill an ordinary person and had received the exact amount that killed her husband, the doctors went over and placed a stethoscope and looked to each other rather dumbfounded and seemed surprised that she was not dead. And she was given more electricity, which started again the kind of ghastly plume of smoke that rose from her head. After two more little jolts, Ethel Rosenberg was dead. Perhaps that was the reason to be concerned with the infiltration of the government. Real espionage. Perhaps not. However, the movement of anti-communism gets tied up with the fear of homosexuality and sex crime. And before you know it, McCarthyism and the persecution of communists becomes McCarthyism and the persecution of homosexuals in this whole era of anxiety extends to a whole nother part of the population. Now, overall, the movement is derailed when McCarthy's brazen and often unfounded accusations drew more criticism. Famously, Edward R. Morrow said of McCarthy on the television program See It Now, quote, Earlier, the senator asked, 
Upon what meat does this our Caesar feed? Had he looked three lines earlier in Shakespeare's Caesar, he would have found this line, which is not altogether inappropriate. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind as between the internal and the external threats of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent, or for those who approve. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. There is no way for a citizen of a republic to abdicate his responsibilities. As a nation, we have come into our full inheritance at a tender age. We proclaim ourselves as indeed we are, the defenders of freedom wherever it continues to exist in the world. But we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear, he merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night, and good luck. There is something crucial that Morrow points out. He didn't create this situation of fear, he merely exploited it, and rather successfully. So when I said at the very beginning that this episode was about fear, perhaps that was misleading. I think more or less this episode is about those who exploit fear, perhaps rather, rather successfully. Because is fearing some great evil a natural inclination for humanity? Must there always be a villain, another, an antithesis to rally against? Why does McCarthyism, a phenomenon whose original intention to root out communists, turns to in part finding homosexuals in the State Department? What is motivating all of this outside of the concern about blackmailing, about espionage? What is motivating it? What is the meaning of this witch hunt? I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. (music) 
I don't think I'm the only one to see these connections. In fact, I know I'm not. Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible at the height of McCarthyism as an allegory to the anti-communist sentiment pervading U.S. media and congressional committees. So if we're talking witch hunts, let's start at where we're all familiar. The Puritans. These individuals were a community that left the Church of England and moved to America in order to follow the word of God as they thought of themselves as chosen people in order to make the Church of England more Protestant. They detested the Roman Catholics and many other faiths, and they found Puritanism as the truest form of faith, something to be recognized, a a city upon a hill, something to look up to, to strive to be pure, clean. Contrary to popular belief, this community did not discourage sex totally. However, they did discourage and criminalize adulterous sex, premarital sex, same-sex relationships, and bestiality. You see, Marital sex was very important to the Puritans as they found that sex was a controlling factor for relationships themselves. It was understood that sex kept marriages together and controlled the wife or husband of and by the power of sex. For instance, Massachusetts had quite a liberal approach to divorce for if someone was not performing the desired sex for their husband or wife, they were able to petition for a divorce on the case of impotence or failing to perform the rights of the marriage. Through this, the Puritans saw sex for the female to control the male and his adulterous thoughts and ways, and also for the male to control the female from any wanton approaches of other men. Now, it was thought that deformities of children or any sort of aggression within the child was caused by the sex being too lustful, aggressive, or while during a menstruation cycle. So many of our preconceived notions about proper sex or sex in general or many ideas and conceptions we have about intercourse are based upon puritanical ideals. Much of it can be, you know, chalked up to superstition, but many of it, as Foucault said, is built on these, these long cycles and structures that all thought is built upon. That you could trace the genealogy of the puritanical views of sex back very, very far to some archaic form of Christianity or whatnot. Now, premarital sex was handled quite differently than assumed. Commonly, these cases were forgiven by the community if both individuals agreed to marry. Inextricably, heterosexual relationships existed hand-in-hand with homosexual relationships. The laws restricting homosexuality, however, were ever-present, but not always enforced. Many times, these lewd actions were treated with whippings, brandings, and even banishment. In the case of John Roberts and Thomas Alexander, they were accused of and confessed to, quote, often spreading their seed one upon another. Many times, actions such as these could not be criminalized unless there was a witness to report them. 
In many cases, homosexuality was not documented. Researchers have assumed that frontiersmen or some other all-male groups may have had homosexual tendencies in the absence of women. With that noted, some magistrates may not have mentioned or sentenced these individuals as harsh as the death penalty as the law suggested because of the possible retaliation of hypocrisy. In the case of Roberts and Alexander, they could have very well been executed for, quote, often spending their seed one upon another. However, in this case, they were both banished from the community after receiving whippings and brandings. Commonly, when identifying if homosexuality existed within the community, the only records we have to reference are those of criminal pieces, as very few records exist from personal messages between one another. With that said, researchers have to be careful as to whether the actions were in fact homosexual relationships or rape, a crude misinterpretation often assumed when utilizing such a data set. And now, we can kind of sketch out and see where these preconceived notions of Arthur L. Miller and the like in the 1950s during the Lavender Scare are coming from. And as in other methods of sodomy, bestiality was almost never tolerated within the communities. This action was quickly sentenced by hanging the convicted individual. Again, these actions were not always brought in front of the community as there must be an individual to report them. In the case of George Spencer, there was a piglet, which was born drawing distinctive resemblances to himself. Yeah, that's disturbing. This sow, previous to the birth of the piglet, was sold to John Wakeman by Spencer. It was shortly thereafter that the sow gave birth to a piglet, which was described as follows. Quote, It had no hair on the whole body. The skin was very tender and of reddish-white color like a child's. The head was most strange. It had but one eye in the middle of the face, and that large and open, like some blemished eye of a man. Over the eye and the bottom of the forehead, which was like a child's, a thing of flesh grew forth and hung down. It was hollow and like a man's instrument of generation. A nose, mouth, and chin deformed, but not much unlike a child's. The neck and ears had also such resemblance. This resemblance to Spencer, as he also had one good eye, was concerning to the population, and I don't blame them at this point, and was examined for this possible connection. Did Spencer impregnate a pig, which gave birth to a piglet that resembled him and a pig, of course, causing a great deal of deformity? Spencer denied any interactions with the sow on multiple occasions, but did eventually confess to the actions. He stated that, quote, The sow came into the stable, and then the temptation and his corruption did work, whereupon he did the wicked deed. According to Leviticus 20.15, cited by the Puritans, Spencer and the sow were both sentenced to death. The sow publicly executed by a sword, and Spencer hanged. Due to the closeness between the Puritan faith and the Bible as put on display by the Spencer fiasco with the sow, we also should note that women were related to Eve in the trials therein. As women in the community were not able to hold office or titles, 
they were ostracized from leadership conversations or decisions made by the community. Through this rationale, specifically the association with Eve, women were seen as controllable by the devil and demons. When a woman might speak out of turn or out against some aspect of life, they were then closely associated with the devil himself. It was through this association that Cotton Mather gave credence to the aforementioned witch hunts. Now, let me draw the connection in case it's not as clear. Women in the community could not hold office or title, and they were ostracized from some leadership conversations because of their association with Eve. Women were seen as controllable by the devil and demons. Just as in the 1950s, homosexuals were seen as controllable by homosexual Russian operatives. Devils and demons, if you will. Homosexuals could be controllable by communists. The 1950 equivalent of a demon. So, when a woman might speak out or turn against some aspect of life, she was associated with the devil himself. When some member of the State Department or inner political circles would speak out, would dissent against 1950s American democracy or 1950s American foreign policy or 1950s American economic or social policy or what have you, they were closely associated with communists themselves. The parallels are present. The hysteria surrounding the witch hunts of Massachusetts were surrounded by the sounds of austerity and challenge. The expulsion of demonic characters was at the forefront of the minds of many leaders at the time of the witch hunts, just as the expulsion of communist characters was at the forefront of the minds of many leaders at the time of really the 1950s witch hunts. Unfortunately, the tests for whether a woman was in fact a witch were equally irrational. For instance, one way to tell if someone was a witch would be to bind the hands and feet of that woman and tie a weight to her feet. Then, the proposed witch was thrown into a lake to see if she drowned or survived. If she did not drown, she was then executed for being a witch. However, as you may have guessed, if she drowned, she was not a witch, but a dead woman. Going into some greater detail of the witch hunts would kind of undermine what the show is all about. The Salem witch trials are commonly taught in school and popularized in literature. The goal was to clean up common misconceptions and show the witch trials' relation to the central theme, its relation to the genealogy of fear. And I think to that aim, we have accomplished what we set out to do. In later years, after the witch hunts, Mather wrote in his diaries some remorseful pieces to the witch hunts and the tactics therein. In the preface of Mather's 1692 work, The Wonders of the Invisible World, he stated, quote, I live by neighbors that force me to produce these undeserved lines. This, as well as some lines in his diary, showcase this doubtfulness of the extremism. However, following a criticism Mather was defensive about his actions. 
And as is the case when dealing with the exploitation of fear and the community-wide reaction to it, we often work in cycles, much like the one Cotton Mather would go through in his life. Just as Joseph Campbell could find traces of the monomyth through time and across cultures, many could find a pattern of moral panic across time and cultures. Thus far, the episode has served as a series of case studies about moral panics, showing, illustrating that cycle in the 1950s during the Salem Witch Trials, and finally the Satanic Panic of the 1980s. And when tracing the Satanic Moral Panic and its relation to everything we've discussed to this point, it works best to lay the events out plainly in some semblance of chronological order, and then examine it all from that broader perspective. The reason being is that I originally envisioned this episode as a survey of witchcraft and the puritanical response to it. But the more I read, the more I realized that the story would be much more. The story has long tendrils that intersect with puritanical fear, McCarthy-esque distrust, while also having much in common with Foucault's genealogy of section, pleasure, and deviance. I found that the Satanic Panic was the logical place to try and understand all of these events and how they relate to our larger conversation of fear. The moral panic isn't a conclusion or an end, but what it is, is a microcosm of everything we've discussed. So logically, the satanic panic begins well with Satanism. Levian Satanism, to be exact. In the Church of Satan, which is a real and still functional organization, was founded in 1966 by Anton Cezandor Levay. It has a website, and you can peruse it at your leisure. But just as any organization that has been around for a while, the bureaucracy behind closed doors, built upon a legacy of success, undergoes changes. Which is why I preface this chapter of the show by saying we'll look at Levian Satanism specifically. Now, distinguishing that the Church of Satan was founded in 1966 is not to say that the ideas of occultism, esoterica, and satanic ritual had their origins in the 60s. And as was well known, the fear of satanic ritual or devil worship goes back much further than the heady days of the 1960s. That said, I want to simply look at the organization that popularized Satanism and Satanic thought as we know it, and to, again, clear up some misconceptions that will come into play later in the story. So what does it mean to be a part of the Church of Satan? Well, in 1969, when the Satanic Bible was written by Anton LaVey, it meant something relatively simple. The Church of Satanism had nine sacraments that define the boundaries of the group's core beliefs or the group's ideology, and they are as follows, quote, Number one, Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. Number two, Satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. Number three, Satan represents undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. Number four, Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. And the list continues in the same vein for six more sacraments, but the trend is clear after the first four. The Church of Satan, and that is to say the popular satanic belief that you can buy in a bookstore, does not condone 
communing with evil spirits or plotting terrible acts on the masses, mutilating animals, drinking blood, and raping. Simply, Levain Satanism worships, if you want to call it that, what Satan represents. And that is according to Levain in the Unholy Book, individuality, indulgence, measured kindness tempered by egoism. Essentially, Satanic culture is a form of counterculture. Levain Satanism was a movement founded in the 1960s espousing an individual's well-being and material indulgence over prudence, abstinence, and celestial groupthink. When you put Satanism in political terms, or philosophical terms, it sounds slightly more reasonable to the average person. In my estimation, Levain Satanism seems to be some pipe dream of randy and objectivism bundled up with Christian iconography, and that's where it gets muddy. The Satanic Bible, stripped of its iconographical trappings, is a web of influences, none of which are documented or cited, or they're on their own, dangerous like Satanism will become considered. Nietzsche, Mencken, Freud, Ayn Rand, Aleister Crowley, and other philosophers or occultists are clearly a strong influence on LaVey, and yet no credit is paid to them. No citations are given. However, outside of an academic perspective, that is not really the issue. The issue, like many things we talk about on the podcast, is in the context. The Satanic Bible was released in 1969, three years after the church began, and shortly after the Manson family irrevocably shocked American culture out of the 1960s. And if that event was not enough to bring worrisome public eye to the satanic, the 1971 publication and 1973 film adaptation of The Exorcist helped that thought along. We often overlook the power of film to transform public opinion on certain matters. The Exorcist, at the very least, altered the public's perception of the Ouija board from its mass-produced Hasbro identity to this cursed object that opens some unseen celestial portal to the afterlife, and I'm no better. My friends and I, at a young age, used to sneak into abandoned buildings with candles and a plachette and Ouija board in hand. It was a quick way to have fun and scare the shit out of yourself, quite frankly. And I distinctly remember being scared by it. However, whether the fear was the actual experience of using the Ouija board, or the ambiance of the unlit and unfamiliar place, or the fear attached to the act by my parents, I really can't say. But it seems that Anton LaVey had a talent for, if anything, at least in the early days of the Satanic Church, for timing. He had a talent for timing. LeVay continued publication of materials in the 1970s, and those materials really did nothing to combat from further associating the cult with all manner of disparate tragedies, from the killings perpetrated by the Zodiac Killer, David Berkowitz, and the Jonestown Massacre. And I'll leave the specifics of those cases to the true crime podcasters because, by God, there are many. But the story of America's satanic panic is not complete without mentioning the 1970s and 80s for what they featured culturally. 
that set the stage for such a moral panic as that one to occur. For example, in 1981, the AIDS crisis formally kicks off as doctors recognize Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocytosis pneumonia in gay men in L.A., San Francisco, and New York, and as was the case with the duck and cover drills, educational measures were taken to prevent contracting HIV. And if a medical crisis was not enough to set people on edge, backing that medical crisis up with uh, educational concern, with indoctrinating children to fear HIV, which is a good thing. You want to fear a disease that could kill you. You want to trust the medicine. But there is a negative slant towards homosexuals, of course. But then people also have find distrust over over-the-counter medications and everyday pain relievers with the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders changing the way we consume medication. Just one year after the AIDS crisis kicks off, we have the Chicago Tylenol murders. The case, of course, started when a 12-year-old girl from the suburbs of Chicago named Mary Kellerman complained of a sore throat and runny nose. Her parents gave her one extra-strength Tylenol that was unbeknownst to them, laced with potassium cyanide. By 7 that morning, their daughter was dead. Deaths like this occurred over the next month, and the nation was in the grips of a crisis. I mean, for example, Tylenol sales at this time plummeted. There were recalls on a massive scale. Millions and millions of units of Tylenol recalled. Hundreds of millions of dollars invested in tamper-proof lids. The Tylenol bill was passed in 1983, made it illegal to tamper with consumer products. The fear at this time is real and tangible. You know, on top of the Tylenol scare and AIDS and whatnot, you have kids on milk cartons and stranger danger is the PSA of the day. And while all of these facts may seem disparate and first, we should realize that they are context, place-setting details. And as they say, the devil is in the details, and I mean, I hate cliches, but that one is rather apt. The board was set for a moral panic. As Jonathan Mailer wrote in his book, Ladies and Gentlemen, the Bronx is Burning, quote, the frenzied media coverage fanned the growing sense of fear. The growing sense of fear fanned the frenzied coverage. Moral panics work in cycles. Moral panics work in cycles, and they often be begin at this, at this odd place, this place of worry and hostility. And the worry surrounds social change, economic change, technological change, and how these changes will affect the status quo. If that's not the 1970s and 80s, I really don't know what is. There's, a, there's an uneasiness, a, an anxiety surrounding how this world that they know, the old guard knows, is going to change, and whether or not that change is going to be for the better or for the worse, and oftentimes they feel as though that change will be for the worse. You know, children staring at televisions playing video games or board games that are dispossessing kids or music that parents think sounds violent or satanic or whatever it might be. An era, a time, a period of worry and hostility and just as 
Mailer wrote the frenzied media coverage, fanning that growing sense of fear that second stage in the cycle of moral panics is a media frenzy, bolstering the concerns of those worried and hostile middle ground. Because we need to put something on top of that fear. We need to put a term to it. We need to put an idea to it. Coverage to it. Because coverage of... Coverage of just a general uneasiness... Doesn't really move tickets, so to speak. It doesn't sell advertising spots. There's a whole... Aside in Hunter S. Thompson's The Rum Dyer, in which he is interviewing people getting off of a plane from Puerto Rico and asking them why they left, and they were talking about the fear. And speaking about the fear, or the worry, or the hostility, or the uneasiness, or the anxiety, it's not, it's not a headline. It's an abstract concept that is hard for people to grasp with. So when the media gets a hold of this worry and hostility, they put a face to it. They put an other, a villain, and those are the folk devils. That's the third stage. Folk devils develop. And finally, we have a face to that which we fear most. Change. And as those in power try desperately to hold on to change, they, they develop laws that reflect the strongest interpretations of their morality. Harsh laws that reflect the strongest interpretations of their morality. It is the fire and brimstone times, the witch hunts, the, the McCarthyism. The night being the darkest before the dawn, that is, that is the fear incarnate. But the thing is, laws do not prevent social change. And that final cycle, that final step in that cycle is the morning after, that realization that the panic was an overreaction. And we all have to look at our neighbors and those that we burned. And that is that moment of grim reflection where you realize that maybe your tactics weren't weren't the most sound. Maybe they weren't the most morally upstanding. The virtuous can make capital out of a situation. They can convert a situation with a potential for strain to a source of satisfaction. One can become even more virtuous letting his reputation hinge on his righteousness, building his self out of invidious comparison to the morally weak. Since others' wickedness sets off the jewel of one's own virtue, and one's claim to virtue is at the core of his public identity, one may actually develop a stake in the existence of deviant others. In short, another's virtue may become a source of another strain. Moral panic inherently involves cultural conflict. There is resistance, innovation, and sometimes provocation. But on the other hand, there is indignation and outrage. The police, it was found in a study about moral panics, the police often pursue the deviants with zeal. And the media thrives on the controversy and the public avidly follows the outrage, and the devious are galvanized and sometimes reconstituted by the response. 
because after all, moral panics, like crimes that has been found, are seductive events. They are community events. They're social in some aspects. It is they versus us. It is the team. It is the tribe. It is tribalism. Moral panic itself, the term, was coined by Stan Cohen in his book Folk Devils and Moral Panics to describe an exaggerated societal reaction fueled by media into what begins as minor acts of deviance. The overreaction leads to a process of deviancy amplification. And that's where we pick up. Deviancy amplification. You spend so long creating devils, the devils might just start to believe that they are monsters. A moral panic is a moral disturbance centering on claims that direct interests have been violated, an act of othering sometimes expressed in terms of demonization, sometimes with humanitarian undertones that are grossly disproportionate to the event or the activities of the individuals concerned. A moral panic is an overreaction. A moral panic is an overreaction. I mean, to right-wing Christian fundamentalists steeped in lore about devils and stewing with hostility towards public child care, it was hard not to embrace the nation, the notion, rather, of Satan infiltrating daycare centers. And that's where this satanic story kind of picks up. This idea of Satanists infiltrating daycare centers with weird sex cults and sexual sacrifices and child rapes taking place for the sake of a satanic ritual. The fear which isn't understood by you, that which is unknown to you, elicited fear not only in witch trials and government hearings on morals, but in folklore. Christian fundamentalists became steeped in lore. That lore is thousands of generations in the making. Symbolism is a strong marker for sexual depravity. For example, there's an old folk folklore tale that's kind of developed through time. The tree of knowledge has been connected not only to loss of innocence, but to carnal knowledge, with fruit that excites the sexual appetite, possibly because of its association with forbidden fruit in art, literature, and folklore. All of these things come into play when Christian fundamentalists are understanding these events unfolding before them. A hostility toward public child care, devil lore, all of these things, they come into some sort of they come into some sort of confluence. A confluence of meeting which is tempered by AIDS and Tylenol killings, milk carton kids, stranger danger ads, the serial killers of the 1970s, the exorcist, Satanism, all of these things are constantly playing into the cultural zeitgeist, which allows for something like the satanic ritual abuse panic to occur. And between 1984 and 1986, investigation into satanic ritual abuse claims would send at least 26 people to jail in interrelated cases that 
really had no corroborative evidence behind them. There was really no physical evidence behind these cases. And again, as was the case with AIDS and with the duck and cover drills, educational videos became the norm. Only these educational videos were not just disseminated to schools, but to law enforcement agencies. For example, law enforcement in El Paso, as one, uh, one officer reminisces, quote, were promptly dispatched to ritual crime seminars, classes aimed at law enforcement authorities and taught mostly by other cops, therapists, preachers, and by born-again Christians claiming to be former high priests and escapees of unspeakable, sadistic, ritual torture cults. And lucky for us, one of those training videos is actually on YouTube, as a matter of fact, and we were able to pull some clips from it so you can hear exactly what the law enforcement was being trained with in regards to satanic ritual abuse and sex cultery, if that's such a word. So here it is. There's two different communities that use this park. Uh, one is the uh, pagan or occultic community, and the other community is, of course, the homosexual community. Interestingly enough, uh, they go hand in hand. And so, well, see, here you go. Um, upon entering the park, I mean, you can see they've already got started. Uh, okay. Uh, this is a pentacle. The interesting thing about this pentacle is it's an upright pentacle. This is not a satanic pentacle. Now, the reason why this pentacle would not be considered satanic is because it has one point up. Now, Satanists would reverse this star, or pentacle as it's called, and have two points up. Those represent uh, the horns of Baphomet uh, and or the horns of Satan. Uh, but now, right over here, I can see on a tree here, there's a, there's a uh, inverted cross. Now, this is satanic. This is a very generic symbol. Uh, let me see. It's, well, it's actually fairly fresh, too. Um, this here, of course, is a, a bastardization of Christianity, and it's a very common symbol. Obviously, they probably had a party or, or a ritual here uh, within the past night or two. Uh, usually what they'll do is they'll mark, it's almost like a path. They'll mark a path to kind of show you where the action's at. Uh, the colors they'll use will be white, red, and black. Those are the dominant uh, colors of uh, the satanic movement. What you just heard was a law enforcement training video. It was disseminated to police officers and law enforcement agencies around the country. It was considered a valuable piece of the law enforcement curriculum. It was the basis upon which office policy was made. It was the basis upon which policing was handled in terms of satanic cults and sexual abuse. Now, I understand what you might be thinking. These are rather disparate case studies. McCarthyism witch trials and the satanic panic. What can these things possibly have in common? I mean, after all, they're separated by decades, and in the case of the witch trials, centuries. And to that I say, the through line is simple enough. These moments present us with the extremes of human behavior, characterized with some degree of othering, fear, and to an extent, sexual 
repression. All the while, some in the halls of power tried to mount a crusade against the others based on fear, armed with accusations of sexual violence, communism, witchcraft, or some other degenerate claim. And from this broad evaluation, many smaller arguments can be made. For example, going back to Edwin Sutherland in his article on sexual psychopath laws, he writes, quote, Certain psychiatrists regard almost all crimes as sex crimes, even theft, though its connection with the Oedipus complex it's regarded as symbolic incest. Others regard crimes which have an unusually horrible features as sex crimes as illustrated by the English murderer who drank blood of his victims. None of the sexual psychopath laws make explicit reference to this broad connection of sex crime. Now, diving into interpretation and critique, be it Freudian, Marxist, or what have you, is not my job. I never claim to have those answers or even the inclination to ponder those questions on air. I'll leave that to the philosophers, but I do have a few facts. The breadcrumbs are there, folks. And I'm interested to know what you think about all of this, so I know all of you are highly intelligent and have a deeper wealth of knowledge than I, so let's, please, let's talk. Let's talk. You can go to Dirty History, Dirty Talk group on Facebook to engage in those discussions. And given the season, I thought an episode that dealt with horror would be in order. But like any good horror, we shouldn't deal exclusively in jump scares. Rather, the impetus should be placed on what Stanley Kubrick did with The Shining, imparting a sense of dread. The question being, which is stronger? That burst of adrenaline as the fight-or-flight response grabs hold of you, or the chronic stress of inescapable dread? The comparison is much the same as wondering what would strike fear deeper into your body, the wail of duck-and-cover sirens, unsure if it is a drill or the real thing, or being fully possessed of the belief that your child is beyond your control, seduced by satanic orgies and ritual sacrifice and sexual psychopaths, and let's be sure, many people experience both of those fears in their lifetime. Maybe the real terror is that of being hopefully and helplessly accused in a witch hunt, even though you know you're innocent. Maybe that's the deepest fear. As I said, I never claim to have the answers, but some facts. So before we start strapping witches to piles of kindling, maybe we should evaluate just what they are. Flesh and bone. Fallible. And ultimately on their path to death, just like you. They, however, have the courage to speak out against the norm, to go against the grain, to be their own person, because they were not descended from fearful men. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been Dirty History. Good night, and good luck. And if you like what you heard here, you can get everything dirty and everything history on our website at dirtyhistorypod.com. You can also follow us on the social medias, Dirty History Pod at Instagram, at Pod Dirty on Twitter, and just Dirty History Podcast on Facebook. If you want to talk to us or send us some messages or talk about what you heard on the episode, you can find us in the Dirty History Dirty Talk group on Facebook. The Dirty History Dirty Talk group on Facebook. You can search it. It is a closed group. Just ask for an invite to join. You can get in and uh, start talking. We're going to have some very interesting conversations in there coming soon. I hope to hear from you. Also, 
You could support the show on Patreon. That's a great way to have some say in where the show is going. Support the show on Patreon, and you will get all kinds of great perks and great things and great access to behind the scenes on the show and um, maybe some say in the creative process. So I would hope to hear from you there. Again, none of this would be possible without you, our listeners. And I appreciate everything you do for the show. So uh, share us on social media, share our website, find us on Patreon. And of course, please rate and review the show on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. That's how we move up. That's how we spread. Rate and review the show. If we're not spreading, we're dying. If we're not spreading, we're dying. So rate and review the show on Apple or wherever you get podcasts. And as always, I'm Thomas Thompson. I work with my two close friends and collaborators, Andrew Henley, who is a co-writer for the show, and uh, Woodrow Cower, who is our artistic director and all-around in-house renaissance man. As I said, I'm Thomas Thompson, and uh, this has been another episode of Dirty History. I'll talk to you soon.